Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. I'd never thought to myself, I'm so glad I'm alive. I'm so excited to live out the rest of my life. There's so many things I want to do. I never thought that way. I just, as I said before, was kind of going through the motions. So I had this massive wake-up call of just how much I wanted to live. And I remember thinking, like, how ironic is that, that I'm realising it now, 10 seconds before I die. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we are joined by an absolute firecracker of a human that is Emma Carey. Em is known as the girl who fell from the sky. At just 20 years old, when skydiving in Switzerland, her parachute failed to open properly. She plummeted from the sky, landing on the ground, completely paralyzing her from the waist down. She spent months in hospital relearning how to move her body again. Today, Emma is a walking paraplegic and one with over 100,000 Instagram followers. As she has documented her recovery and her rebirth, as she now calls it, Emma has built a hugely loyal following thanks to her sunny and warm and thoughtful posts. But often, behind the scenes, things have been much harder than she presented them on Instagram. Last week, we sat down with Emma in Brisbane and asked her all about it. M. Carey, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Thank you. We are so excited. We actually sent you a DM, it might have been in March, wanting to get you on the show and you didn't see it. (laughs) That's what she says. (laughs) So sorry about that. And you reached back out being like, hey girls, I just saw this like nine months later, let's do it. Yeah, I went to reach out to you guys and then when I went to message you, I saw your message and I was like, (laughs) it would have looked so desperate. It would have looked so desperate. It's so embarrassing. Like there's two random Melbourne girls being like, hi, we love you. No, no, I was glad because then I was like, great, we're all on the same page. Let's do it. And the first question we ask everyone is what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend? Okay. The main thing that jumps out is I go through real phases of reading books Mm. every single minute of the day and then not reading books for years. And I'm currently in a reading phase and all I read is love novels, like love stories. I just love love, love love stories. I feel like I'm in them when I'm reading them. And so there's this author called Colleen Hoover. I'd never heard of her. I've never heard of her. Until someone recommended her. And she's the kind of author, you know how some books take a long time to get into? Mm. Page one, you're like hooked. You're into it. You can't put it down. So... That's what I. That reading. sounds great. That is a great recommendation. Mm. Sometimes we get recommendations where I'm like, "Yep, across I that already." That, yeah. I'm not across. What's her name? Colleen. Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover. Also, not mm. many people admit that they love reading about love, but I fucking love reading oh. and listening about love. Why would people not admit? You know that? how there's a bit of shame Sarah, about. We like, have a whole podcast oh, about. Totally. Love. That's why we love love. But you know how people sometimes call it like chiclet, or there's so much shame around wanting to read those kinds oh. of stories. There's so much good in them. Yeah. No shame. No shame. And love, you're also love. newly. And we'll get to this later. You're also newly in love, so I think it's also that like honeymoon period 
period of a relationship where you're like, give me all of the, the soppy world, romance yeah, stories. The world is beautiful. Yeah, maybe that's why I'm in my in my everyday reading phase right now. <laughs> um, the second question we ask everyone is, what was your childhood like? Oh, straight into it. Um, hmm, good, great. <laughs> I think I had a pretty normal childhood. I was very, very shy as a child, like extremely even up to up to when I was probably 22, which is only four years ago, so shy. That's the main thing that's jumping out at me and also just very, very sporty. Like I was always that annoying kid in school that was just good at every sport. Like that was me. <laughs> and you grew up on the Gold Coast? No, in Canberra. In Canberra. The nation's capital. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have picked that. You seem like such a Gold, like Gold Coast kind of girl. Yeah, I know. I just, as soon as I moved to the Gold Coast, which was five years ago, I just, I got there and I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. And what made you move? Well, it was a year after my accident, which I'm sure we'll get into. And I just wanted a fresh start for my life. I wasn't working at the time, so I could kind of, I wasn't held in Canberra for any reason. And I just wanted a fresh start. And I thought, I like, I love the warm weather. I love the ocean. I'd never really been to the Gold Coast, but I was like, (laughs) looks pretty. Let's go. (laughs) Sounds good. Got in the car, made my family come and here we are. Wow. So pre-20, what were you like? Like you say you were shy as a kid and as a teenager, but what was young M. Carey like as she was planning a Europe trip when she was 20 years old? Yeah. So yeah, life was so different. It's so weird to me to think back on because it's like a distinct before and after kind of, I don't know if everyone has this at some, you know, with some point in their life that it's before and after. For me, it's the accident. Mm. So anything beforehand, my memory is so hazy of it because it feels like another person. I was very different. Like I just wasn't the, you know, kind of the bubbly, happy, excited person that I am today. I wasn't depressed as such, but I just like, I wasn't excited for anything. I just woke up. I just kind of went through the motions. I was just working jobs to save up for my trip, which a lot of people are doing at that age, but I didn't really have any direction or excitement in my life. Did you know what you wanted to do? Like, had you thought about career? Had you thought about work? What you were passionate about then? Uh, well, I was actually going to uni at the time studying nutrition and dietetics. I think that's how you say the word. I never actually <laughs> I just went whenever, to the course. Yeah, whenever anyone asks me what I'm studying, I'm like, dietetics? <laughs> I think you know um, it. It's definitely dietetics. Okay, great, great. Um, that and personal training. So I just loved, yeah, sport and being healthy. So that's what I was studying, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that. So you're 20 and you plan a trip to Europe. Yep. Why Europe and why did you want to go and explore? Um, I think why Europe, it's just what, I don't know if it's a Canberra thing or an Australian thing, but just that's kind of where everyone does their big gap year holiday. Um, so yeah, it was with my best friend, Gemma. We organized to go to Europe. We'd been planning for years, which we'd, we'd just been working for so long to save up for it. And I had a, I don't actually know, I don't think I had a return ticket, just a one-way ticket. We were doing a top deck over there and then we were just going to kind of like see what happened and... Yeah, I was just, I don't know, it just seemed like a really fun thing to do at that time. Mm. Mm. And how many, was it five days into the trip, things went really wrong? Yeah, five days. I think that's the most devastating part about it. Like, (laughs) Yeah, you missed out on the Europe I know, yeah, you save up all this money and then five days in, you're like, boom. Um, But yeah, on the fifth day, we got to Switzerland, Lauterbrunnen. It's the most beautiful place in the entire world. Like, I think it's actually called that. Um, And we decided to go skydiving. And really weird, I'd always known that I was going to go skydiving in this one particular place in Switzerland, which is weird. I'd never been there. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that that's the first place I wanted to go skydiving. So we got there and because I was such like an adrenaline junkie, loved all things like that, I wasn't nervous for it. I didn't really think much about it. I was just like, yep, 
let's go skydiving. Whereas Gemma, um, my friend who I was with, she was the total opposite. Like I totally just convinced her to do it. She hated the entire experience. We didn't even want to do it. But then, yeah, we, we did it and we went up in the helicopter. And as I was looking down below us, that's the first time it really hit me. I was like, well, we're really high up. <laughs> and I said to the instructor, I was like, are we about to jump soon? And he said, no, we're not even, we're not even halfway up. And that's the first time I realized like, okay, this is actually pretty intense. But then we jumped out and I absolutely loved it. I just remember feeling like so peaceful, which is weird because you're, you know, plummeting to the ground. But I remember it being just so freeing and peaceful. And at that time, as I said, I wasn't really in a good place mentally. But I remember so clearly thinking, this is exactly what I'm meant to be doing right now. clarity. Yeah. Wow. Which is a very, I don't know if that's a normal thing or if it was kind of like preempting what was about to happen, but I just felt exactly like that's what I should be doing right yeah. then. As we kept falling, I noticed a few things which were a bit weird, but because I'd never skydived before, I didn't know if it was normal or not. So the first thing I noticed is that when he pulled, they, he taps you on, you get a tap on the shoulder before they pull the parachute. So I felt the tap and then I felt a jolt. But we didn't really slow down that much. And I imagined that, you know, you'd, you'd slow down a fair bit. Well, you almost go up in the air, don't you? Yeah. Or it has that weird... Like jolt up effect? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen that in yeah. TV well, shows. God uh, knows if that's true. I don't know what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> you you tell me. You tell me from the TV. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I was waiting for that. And we did, yeah, we just didn't really slow down. And I was like, okay, maybe there's something else that will slow us down soon. So I wasn't too nervous yet. And I also noticed that my hair got really pulled back and it really hurt when when the parachute came out. So I was like, it's weird. Why does no one warn you that, like, it hurts? <laughs> They're going to um, yank all your hair yeah, out. <laughs> seriously, I was like, it's weird. Um, and th- but then the next thing I noticed is I was waiting for, like, a high five or for him to talk to me or I was even yelling out to him and there was no response. And so that's when I started getting a bit freaked out and especially because the closer we got to the ground and we were still going that fast, I was like, oh, how are we going to have time to slow down? But then the moment when I really realized something was wrong is I saw in front of us, instead of above us, a parachute, a red parachute, I can picture it so clearly, tangled up in a ball. And so I was yeah, screaming out to him, like, are we okay? Like, can you fix this? What's going on? And he just wasn't replying at all. And again, we were just getting closer and closer to the ground. And at this stage, like it was obvious, anyone, even if you don't know anything about skydiving, would... You, you know, you'd know you can't slow down in time at that speed. So, yeah, I just thought, this is it. Like, I'm actually about to die. There was no doubt in my mind that I was about to die. I didn't think it was possible to survive. What do you think about when you think you're going to die? Is that literally the only thought that goes through your mind? Well, yeah, it's really weird because time, it's like time wasn't, it was very warped in that moment because I had so much time to think about a lot of different things and really register what was happening. But at the same time, it went so quick and it probably was only, I don't know, 30 seconds. I don't know how long it takes to fall. So I remember thinking about, I remember having like a really major realisation of just how much I didn't want to die, which seems really obvious, but I'd never thought about that before. I'd never thought to myself, I'm so glad I'm alive. I'm so excited to live out the rest of my life there's so many things I want to do I never thought that way I just as I said before was kind of going through the motions so I had this massive wake-up call of just how much I wanted to live 
And I remember thinking, like, how ironic is that, that I'm realising that now, 10 seconds before I die. Em, I want to read you a passage from your own website because I think you are a fantastic writer, first of all, and I think you put it in words that I don't think anyone else could. You write, until that day, I'd never faced a situation that was irreversible. Normally, when you come across a problem in life, there is some kind of solution, some way to erase the damage or some way to move forward. There, lying on the ground, facing the dirt, with an unconscious man on my back, there was nothing like that. I couldn't move my legs, I couldn't go back in time five minutes, and I couldn't deny the damage. The permanency of the situation broke my heart. I wondered how it would feel to live the rest of my life unhappy. What is that moment? You're a great writer. I didn't even remember writing that. Wow. What is that moment like? So you're on the ground, you realise you are alive despite all the odds saying that you probably shouldn't be Mm -hmm. and there's a man on your back and you can't move your legs. What's going through your head? Yeah, so my first thought when we hit the ground was like confusion. I was like, am I alive? Am I dead? Because surely (laughs) Is this what heaven is? Yeah, I was like, surely I can't be alive. Um, so I, yeah, I landed on my belly with my face on the ground and the instructor, cause he's strapped to my back is on top of me. So my first thought is, yeah, what's going on? And then my next thought is because he's still not answering me. So I assume he's dead, but thankfully he survived and he's okay. But at the time I assumed he must be dead or at least really badly injured. So I thought I better go get up and look for help because we're yeah in the middle of a field in Switzerland there's no one around I didn't know if anyone would find us so I thought I better get up and it was in that moment when I went to stand up and kind of roll him off me or you know just get up that that's when I realized I was completely paralyzed from the waist down so I was trying to you know just roll over to my side which uses your abs and that wouldn't even work I was trying to bend my knees to stand up and then when that wasn't working I tried to just wriggle my toes or do any kind of small movement and there was nothing and it's so it's so weird and it's so hard to explain because in you know it's probably a two-minute period from my life going from well my body going from perfectly functional and normal and then two minutes later not being able to do something you've been able to do for 20 whole years you know your entire life and it's just so hard to wrap your head around how how you just can't do it anymore when you've always done it. How does it feel? Does it feel like the lower half of your body doesn't exist? Like your brain can't even get to locate that part? Or That's how it kind of feels now. Well, like parts of my body that are still paralyzed. But at the time, because obviously I still had the strong memory, very strong because it was one minute earlier, of how it did feel to move my body. So it felt like I was or it felt like it should be able to move, but it just wasn't. It's so hard to explain. But whereas now, years later... I don't remember how it felt to do certain movements or feel certain things. So it kind of feels like, yeah, I kind of feel unattached from that part. But at the time I was just like, what? Like, (laughs) how isn't it moving? Mm. What Mm. happens next? Your family come out, you go to hospital. What happens to the man on your back? Like, what are those next few days like? Yeah, so my friend Gemma, she, her instructor must have seen that we were going off course and followed us down. So she was the first person to find us. So she ran over And I was just yelling out, I can't move my legs, I can't feel my legs, like, help me. I don't know what else I was saying. Um, And she somehow, maybe it was her instructor's phone, I don't know, but they called the ambulance. Uh, We were in the middle of nowhere, so we had to wait for a helicopter to arrive. And that time, again, it's one of those times I don't actually know how long passed. It seemed like hours just laying there. And because I wasn't allowed to move, obviously, so I couldn't, you know, I was still laying on my belly with my face in the dirt all I wanted to do was roll over or like 
have some water or something because my mouth was full of blood but I wasn't allowed to move at all and it just seemed to go forever and also I don't think I mentioned before but I was in the most intense pain of my life like I didn't even realize you could feel I feel like pain isn't even the right word because it doesn't even regular pain doesn't even compare it's beyond pain yeah it just excruciating and it just got worse and worse so yeah that time lane there was just absolutely horrible and that's when I had another big realization that you know, I'd been in my body for 20 years and it could do anything. And as I said, my whole life I'd been so sporty. So I know I did make the most of my body, but I didn't have gratitude or appreciation that I was lucky to be able to do those things. I didn't realize that, well, you know, I knew that there were people that couldn't move, but I never thought, you know, you'd never think it's going to happen to you. So I had, yes, such a realization of just how incredible our bodies are and how much I feel like I, yeah, took took for granted and again I thought it's ironic I'm realizing this now when it's too late. Do you have any contact now I know this is jumping forward but we'll probably go forward and back a little bit have you ever reached out to the man who was on your back to the instructor and have you connected and spoken about what happened to you both? We've spoken a little bit when we we both got flown to the same hospital in Switzerland and again he's I don't know if he's Swiss or German I don't mm. know but didn't really speak the same language and don't live in the same place. But before I got flown back to Australia, which was about a month later, I, I still hadn't seen him, hadn't heard from him, and I was just begging the nurses to let me see him before I was wheeled out to the ambulance to then get on the plane home. So he was still in the hospital a month later? Yeah, he was still in the hospital, but I hadn't seen him or heard from wow. him. So I yeah, just begged the nurses to let me see him, and it was just before I left, like we had two minutes, that he came in and he got wheeled in in a wheelchair and we just held hands. I don't really remember what we said to each other, even if we said much, but I remember like holding his hand and just thinking like no one else will know, understand that experience besides us two. And it was a weird connection. (laughs) Did he he pass out while he was on your back in the air? Is that why he wasn't responding to you or did you just not know what to say? No, so he... Yeah, the accident's kind of hard to explain because I don't understand enough about skydiving. I just know what I've been told from the investigators and everything. So basically there's two parachutes in the backpack. There's one which comes out when they when they pull it and then there's an emergency one which only comes out at a certain altitude if the other one isn't out for whatever reason. So um, my instructor pulled our parachute too late, which meant that by the time he pulled that, the emergency one was coming out automatically. So they were coming out at the same time, got all tangled, and then the cords got wrapped around his neck and strangled him. So he was unconscious for the whole fall. Wow. And that's why he couldn't normally, I guess, in that situation, not that it would happen a lot, but they would be able to cut off one of the parachutes untangle or untangle them, them yeah. whatever. Yeah, but he couldn't. He was unconscious the whole time. Wow. That's why, yeah, he couldn't do anything. Coming up after the break, Emma explains what it's like having strangers come up to you on the street and ask you consistently about the worst day of your life. But first, it's time for a word from our sponsors. I think it would be so easy for people to look at you now and think that the road from that point to where you were now was kind of smooth. I mean, things started to work. You were paralysed, but then you could walk. But tell us about the really ugly side of that period after, because it wasn't a straightforward or easy period after. What was that time like? What were the dark days like? Yeah. See, yeah, it's hard because it just seems like, you know, now I'm so lucky to be walking and it seems like, oh, okay, you just got better. But yeah, in the beginning days, it was absolutely horrible and even now 
six years later and so many times in between. Like, there have been so many times which are just, like, obviously the good has so outweighed the bad, but there there's been so many hard times and so many things that are still present with the injury. But, yeah, it wasn't until probably a month or maybe a few weeks after the accident that I started to have gratitude for surviving and for, you know, still having the use of my arms and hands. But in those beginning few weeks... I was just so devastated. And as I said in that paragraph you read before, like my biggest fear wasn't that I would never walk again. It was that I would never feel happy again. Like I couldn't imagine going through life never feeling happiness again because I just thought at that time, I didn't know anyone else who was paralyzed. I didn't know anyone with any serious injury. So I just thought you couldn't, you know, that was it. I didn't think there was a way to be happy, but that's definitely not the case at all. But that's how it felt back then. I think that's the aspect that people would probably not see so much. They they see the physical injury, but it's probably the mental injury that would have the bigger toll. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, in a way it was like losing my identity because, as I said before, my whole life was just sport and being active and that kind of thing. That's like that's who I knew myself to be. So when I lost that part of myself, even now that I can walk, I can't run, I can't jump, I can't do so many things that I used to love to do. It was, yeah, it took away a piece of my identity and I couldn't work anymore. So that, you know, it took away that side of it. My boyfriend broke up with me. So all the major... Oh my God, that's the last yeah. thing you need after you've fallen from a fucking helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, so there were all the like main points that made up who I was were in one day like just erased so I was just left obviously devastated physical wise but mentally I was like who who am I like what I don't know who I am if I don't have all of these parts so it was literally like being born again and creating a whole new person which at the time was so hard but it's also been amazing because I could choose what path I wanted to take and who I wanted to be what parts of my old personality I wanted to keep and what I wanted to yeah, change and create. I wanted to ask you about anger. You wrote on Instagram not too long ago, now there's a fire in me lit by every person who has done me wrong. I have a lot to be angry about and here I am fucking angry. I know you're laughing at that right now. Your eyes are wide. Oh my God. And I know there's so much happiness that's part of your life right now. Like, And we're going to really get to that. Yeah, and we, we will. absolutely will. But there's not a person who would go through anything close to what you're going through and not just feel rage. What was your relationship with anger like? Yeah, so this is really weird because up until, so this was six years ago and up until the start of this year, I was like blissfully happy. I was just genuinely stoked with life and everything and I had so much gratitude and I held no anger to the instructor. I would even speak about like, how, you know, how easy it was to let go of anger and to, you know, forgive people. And like, I was really proud of myself for not holding on to anger. And that was something I really focused on. And then it wasn't until the start of this year when my case ended, which we can get more into, but I, yeah, there was a case about the whole accident and that ended at the end of last year. And then it wasn't until after that, that all these emotions which I actually hadn't processed were starting to come up. It's like up until that point I was just kind of on, I don't know what you call it, like adrenaline just trying to get through until that was done and then I let myself feel everything. But the anger thing, it was so weird because as I said, I'd always just held nothing against him, forgave him, but the more I learnt about the accident and the more I learnt about my injury and what I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life, I realised first of all it could have been avoided like it wasn't a freak accident there was a reason it happened 
and I'm going to be like this, you know, permanently injured. Yeah, it was so weird. I don't feel that anger anymore at all, but it's something I definitely had to go through to get to the other side of. And it was very confronting for me because I wasn't used to feeling that way. How do you channel that energy? Because that's like a very potent kind Mm. of feeling and energy. How are you moving through that now? Well, apparently I just write big rants on Instagram, <laughs> which are great, by the way. They're Seriously. so great to read. And they're not rants. They're just it's like so nice weird. thought bubbles. Like I'll write something at, in like the middle of the night, whatever I'm feeling, post it. And then the next morning, it's like then it's fully out of my system. And then the next morning when I read it, I don't even relate, relate to mm-hmm. it anymore. It's so weird. So, so many things that I, I read, which I've written years ago, I'm like, oh my God, I don't, I don't remember that. I do that with anxiety. Whenever I'm having like a panic attack or just after I'll write something and then a few days later or a few weeks later, I'll read it back. I'm like, fuck, I'm melodramatic. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I'm always like, I'm so dramatic and I'm not like that day to day. But see, people that follow me on Instagram would be like, oh my God, she's so dramatic. But I think that's the beauty of writing that sometimes you can tap into a side of yourself that allows you to feel those things so deeply. And I think with someone like you who has experienced such something so traumatic, it's important. Like it's important to have an outlet for that side of yourself. Yeah. So is it is it writing for you that yeah, it helps definitely. you process? Yeah, it's very, very therapeutic for me. And that's, I guess, how the whole Instagram thing started for me. I just started writing. It was basically like a diary and posting whatever I was going through or feeling at the time, which in the beginning was very, very positive because that's how I was feeling at the time. And yeah, everything I wrote out, it just, it helped me to process it. Cause as I was writing, I would write things that I didn't even realize I was feeling. Mm. And it, yeah, it really has helped and still does help a lot for me. Let's talk about Instagram for a second. You have more than, I think it's more than 150,000 followers. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. (laughs) How does it feel to have that many people invested in your story and wanting to know about your life? Mm, It's, it's weird because like for most of the time I like in my normal day to day, I don't even think about that or it doesn't affect anything I do differently. But then when I'm you know, when I'm writing, and again, when I post things that I've written, which are like, you know, my diary entries straight from the heart, it doesn't really occur to me that there's that many real life people reading it. And it's not until I meet people in person and they'll say like, thank you for when you wrote this, or this really helped me with this. And I'm well, like, they read it out to you on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And your eyes start to bulge out of your head. <laughs> yeah. And that's when I realize, like, oh, wow. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. I feel really disconnected from Instagram in a way. Like I love it and I love how it's helped me connect with people and it's helped me, you know, share your story, share everything. But I don't feel connected to it in any way, if that makes sense. Because it's almost like it doesn't exist. Like there are these numbers, but it's so hard to see that. Yeah. And so for that, it's sort of like still your own diary. Yeah. And then like you close your phone and you go on with your life. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sure it's different for people who, when they go outside, they're like bombarded by people or paps or anything, but like, it's not <laughs> like that for You me. can't live a normal life. It's yeah, so hard. It's so hard. Like, that's not the case at all. So I just feel like I'm so grateful for being able to share everything on Instagram, but it's, yeah, it's like a separate part of my life, if that makes sense. For those who might be listening to this or those who do follow you on Instagram and see it and might feel a little bit confused, the idea of a walking paraplegic might sound like an oxymoron to someone. Can you walk us through how is someone a walking paraplegic and what is the process there to begin walking again? Yeah, so I didn't realise this was a thing and this is part of the reason I talk about my injury and all the things that come along with it so much because I don't think there's much knowledge about this kind of thing I always if I saw someone in a wheelchair before my accident I just thought their legs didn't work and that was that I never thought more into it but there's so many different things that come along with the spinal cord injury so the four main things 
for me with my level, which is L1, is loss of movement, loss of sensation, so I can't feel anything from the injury site down, um, loss of bowel control and loss of bladder control. And the only thing which has improved for me in those six years is the loss of movement. I still are paralysed in some parts of my legs and don't have full movement, but that's definitely improved like dramatically, so much so that I can walk, which I'm so thankful for. But all the other elements of paraplegia I still have. So I guess that's how it is called a walking paraplegic, which just sounds so weird because, yeah, you think, well, I always thought the the ability to walk was what a paraplegic, you know, I didn't explain that well, but did that make sense? No, no it absolutely. makes perfect sense. You touched earlier on this court case that had a hold on your life for a really long time. I wanted to ask you about it because I remember you went off Instagram for six months and I remember you posted and you had to be quite vague in your status as to where you'd been and why this was such a big deal because there's a lot you can't say when it yeah. comes to legal stuff. Can you talk about why that was such a big deal for you and what it meant for your life at the time? Yeah, so it was pretty much straight after my accident that um, the court case began when I got back to Australia. So it was probably like a month after my accident that it all started. And it only ended at the end of last year. So that was six, well, five and a half years that I had this case going on, which I wasn't allowed to talk about or mention. And I didn't realise how many things were involved in a court case until I experienced it. But with, and I don't know if this is always the case, but with something, an injury like mine, where I look like I've gotten better, even though I still walk with a limp, besides that, I look perfectly healthy. But I still had so many ongoing symptoms. So in the lawyer's eyes and in, in, I guess, the you know opposing team's eyes, it looked like I was fine. So they wanted me to, you know, not do anything that would make it seem like I was recovered or seem like I was fine. And there were so many limitations of if I could do work or if I could do study or if I could appear happy online. That was a major one. There were so many things which I was told to do, which I totally ignored because I thought to myself it's much more important to get on with life than, you know, win this court case. Well, you can't um, live in limbo for six years. Exactly. And pretending to be depressed for six years, you're going to be depressed. 100%. Like, you're going to pretend like you're going to trick your brain yeah. into feeling depressed. Yeah. Even when I was choosing a lawyer, one of the first lawyers I spoke to, he said, um, you're not allowed out of the house, out of your wheelchair, even if you can walk because you have to pretend that you're still in a wheelchair. And I was like, excuse me, I am not doing that. Like, I'm so proud and happy and grateful to be walking. Like, no amount of money or whatever else is worth Mm. pretending. You know what I mean? So there were a lot of things. I didn't go with that lawyer, obviously. (laughs) Um, But there were a lot of things like that that they wanted me to do to appear more injured, but I wasn't going to lie. And I also didn't think that I needed to. Like, I... I am, and doctors all proved it in their reports, like undeniably <laughs> injured in many yes. aspects. So I, I hated the thought that they were trying to like catch me out when there's nothing to catch me out on. Like, like no, no, I fell from the sky. Yeah. This isn't something yeah. that I'm creating. Yeah. And the worst part of it was having like a really bad injury wise day. For example, like I spoke about the bladder and bowel stuff, like there's been occasions where I've literally in the middle of Melbourne CBD which is so busy as you know and I've literally shat myself had poo dripping down my legs onto the street all by myself people pointing laughing taking photos of me and I had nothing I could do and that's like not the only time that that's ever happened and then I'd go back 
to, you know, my hotel crying, like cleaning myself up. It'd take hours and then I'd get an email from my lawyer or from whoever being like, oh, sorry, you don't look injured enough. And I'm like, you, you don't understand. Yeah, it was very, it was very frustrating to have to try and prove something which didn't need to be proven because it was real. What I found interesting when you posted about the case being done is that you didn't explain this like euphoric feeling. You said you felt numb, like you felt numb about it. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I always imagined that when this case ended, I would feel so free. I would finally be able to do everything without knowing that I was being, because I was being watched the whole time, not just on Instagram. They said I would be watched literally in person to make sure, again, as I said, trying to catch me out. Like (laughs) they'd have people watching you, like planted to watch you. Yes, Everything I did was watched. So I thought that when it ended, I'd feel so free and I would finally be able to do all the things I'd wanted to do that I'd be too scared in case, you know, I looked like I wasn't injured or whatever. So, yeah, I always thought it'd be the best day of my life when this when this day finally came. And then after it ended, I just, I felt absolutely numb, which was so bizarre because I thought it's just not what I expected. And there'd been such a build-up for five whole years and then numb. And it was so odd. It was like, I think my body had kind of shut down in a way because there were so many emotions that I had to process, which I've been doing for this entire year. But at the time I I couldn't, like it would have been too overwhelming. Well, it sounds like almost they forced you to carry on a sense of guilt for something that you were no fault for and something that happened to you. Yeah. And processing that level of guilt and that level of anxiety would be so tricky. Yeah. And I, they also kind of taught me, like brainwashed me to think anything, any achievement I had or any kind of sense of improvement was bad. Like the fact that I learned to walk, oh, that's not good for the case. When I got a boyfriend, like, oh, that's not good. That shows you're lovable. Like, What a mind fuck. I know, yeah. So I kind of have, without even realising, it's only in hindsight that I realise now I have this kind of thing ingrained in me that anything, like striving for anything or doing any kind of achievement, like that's bad. So I have to kind of break out of that. I wanted to ask you about love because you touched on love so early today. Love, love. Um, So do I. And what you said, I mean, I've been following you, I reckon since about 2015, 2016, which sounds so creepy in hindsight. I really am. My best friend put me onto you. One of the themes I had seen you write about over the past few years is about love and dating and finding someone when you have all of this very rich context to your life. What was that like? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's been weird. <laughs> like, it's been great. In a lot of ways, dating has been so normal. And I've met so many amazing, so many, like two. <laughs> like a like hundred yeah. amazing people. Like, amazing guys. And everyone's been so, like, caring and understanding and generous. And, like, it's great. But I think because when I was broken up with when I was, it kind of instilled in me that, and again, the lawyer's always saying it, like, I'm hard to love or you know, no one's going to be able to take me with all of the things that come along with me. And You've my got injury. baggage, Em. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's what was like ingrained, which I like fully do not believe at all now, but that's how I kind of felt. So I always like really struggled when it come, came to relationships. And I don't think it was anything to do with the guys. It was more so me holding myself back and fear of getting hurt again. Mm. But yeah, like, it's great now. <laughs> How did you meet your boyfriend? Tell the listeners all about him. Um, his name is Tom. We met at F45, went to the gym together. He didn't speak to me for months and just <laughs> me on Instagram instead. And then What a 2019 like, romance. How all the great love stories start. F45, great. Instagram, what other buzzwords can we get in here? <laughs> Avocado Slid somewhere? in the DMs. And then I 
finally months later found out that he'd been messaging me online all these times and I messaged him back because he didn't speak to me once at the gym or like even smile at me and I was like this dude hates me um so then I messaged him and was like look if you want to talk to me (laughs) come to my house right now so I made him come over (laughs) has to be the ballsiest I would be fucking terrified if someone said that to me yeah he said yeah and like how did he know I wasn't crazy like a killer because I was very like (laughs) that's the last thing you needed I was very bossy about it um and then he came over and then that was that and that was how long ago six months ago yeah, maybe more. I think it was March. So there you go. I don't know. Tell us about the people in your circle who have helped you get to this point because I imagine they've been crucial in sort of forming a wall around you and leaning on each other. Who are they? Yeah, my group of friends is absolutely incredible. When I moved to the Gold Coast, I met like this group of friends. Well, they weren't even friends. We all kind of met at the same time and cr- just became like this family and everyone's so supportive of each other and everyone's else has had like big life experiences too and we really just all relate to each other and it really feels like a family and it was about three years ago we all moved in together there was like seven of us in the house (laughs) and that year like looking back at I'm like that's crazy how did we do that but that year was just so nice for all of us it was just such like a girl power year and just really getting to know each other um so seven girls one house well, yeah, well, one was Laz, my niece. That sounds so. like such a weird oh. porno. Seven girls, <laughs> Seven one house. Seven girls, one house. There's your title. And your niece as well, who's what, five? She's five now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe sevens. Maybe it was six. I don't know. But there was a lot of people in this one house. Like, Elle and I um, shared a bed. Like, we, there wasn't even enough wow. rooms in the house. So we shared a bedroom and a bed for an entire year. So we all really bonded. <laughs> I do want to ask you a big question. Ooh. So if you have a big answer, that's totally fine. But I want to know, what is it like to get a second chance at life? Mm, it's Yeah, that is a big question. Um, but it's amazing. It's like a, a wake-up call. You can become whoever you want to become because all the little insecurities that I had before or all the doubts I had about all these things, like – in a moment when you realise you're about to die, you you realise nothing matters. Like the only things you care about are the people you love and the things you love. Everything else literally doesn't matter. And I don't know if – well, no, I do know why. That's why now I don't really give much of a fuck about anything, not in a negative way, but just like the way I look or the way I – like if I'm sharing too much online, I just – I don't care. Like I don't care what people think of me. And I think it's just – yeah, getting a second chance a second chance at life is amazing because you you have whole new perspective and you kind of woken up to how incredible life is and how many things you're so lucky to have and you know grateful to experience without all the all the negative. Who is M Carey outside of everything that happened to you or are those two things inextricable it's almost impossible to separate them? Yeah, it's it's weird like because it's such a big part of my life. Um, but I, I feel very separate from the person who was skydiving and fell from the sky. Like I don't relate to her. That was six years ago. It was two minute period of my life. I don't resonate with that, but you know, the recovery side of it and my injury and the things I live with, like, that's all very much who I am. Like the physical recovery, the mental recovery, that like all the things I learned from that experience is kind of who I who I am now, if that makes sense. No, absolutely, because it's mm. so much more about than the physical injury. I think we yeah. read that you'd said before as well. That I think so many people want to fixate on the fact that you walked again, but your biggest achievement is what the mental hurdles that oh, you have to overcome. Definitely, yeah. In the beginning, people would always ask me like, "How did you learn to walk?" And I get emails every day, and it just breaks my heart from people who have, you know, their son or 
girlfriend or daughter has just been injured and they want to know how I learned to walk again because they want to be able to, you know, pass that message on. And for me, the physical recovery, like, yes, I put in a lot of hard work, but I put that down to luck because there's so many people that I know and that I'm friends with who are the most determined, positive people in the world and they aren't walking. So I don't, yeah, I I feel like I can't really explain the physical side of it. Whereas the emotional side of it, like that was my choosing. I chose how to react to it and I chose where to take my life from that point. It was, it really could have gone either way. And I'm really proud of how I recovered emotionally. So that's what I would rather talk about because I feel like that was, that was me. Whereas physical, like that, I don't know. I don't know what that was. (laughs) Well, I think the thing that strikes me having met you now and spoken to you for almost an hour is that you are so full of life like this happened to you but you're still going f45 and that's where you met your boyfriend like those two facts in itself like yes this accident happened to you and yes the recovery was probably really difficult but to even be going to f45 and still giving it a shot and like prioritizing those type of things and putting yourself out there means that you met perhaps the love of your life right Yeah. Like I, I don't think it's held me back in any way. Well, when the case was on, yes. (laughs) But I, I think if anything, it's made me, even though I can't physically do all the things I used to be able to do. And a lot of the times people like stare at me or point at me and think I'm walking weird or whatever, but I just, I don't care. Like it's just made me have more of a, like a, what's the word, zest for life and more of a want to do all these things because I'm alive. I'm so lucky to be here and do everything that I can. And I'm so, like, so lucky to be walking. And do so I just kind of want to do literally everything that I can using my two legs because when I was in my wheelchair, the things, and when I thought I'd never walk again, the things that I wanted to do most were things that places my wheelchair couldn't take me, like sit on, I love sitting on, cliff edges or like climbing mountains or going in the ocean all the things that I that I couldn't do in a wheelchair I'm like I've got to do these things now even though we've spent such a good portion of this interview talking about the accident in your life after you did post on Instagram a little while ago talking about how every time someone meets you they come up and they ask about the accident and you phrased it so beautifully in this post you're like I don't want to be rude and I don't want to discourage anyone from saying hi but that idea that every single person that wants to come up and say hi to you wants to talk about the worst day of your life must be completely overwhelming. Yeah. Well, since that post, that doesn't happen anymore really? much, which is great. But it it was to the point where like I would get a massage and if the massage lady, this happened a few times actually, followed me, she would be massaging me, which is meant to be a relaxing time, and then say, so how did it feel to fall? And I'm like, I don't really want to be thinking about that now. But I would, I never felt, I felt like it was really rude to be like, oh, I don't actually want to speak about that. So I'd always go into it. But now I kind of know how to handle it better. But yeah, it's it's weird because we'd never ask someone, like, I don't know, another situation. Well, it's like you'd never go up to a, a mum who lost her baby and yeah. go, tell me about your miscarriage. Exactly. We, yeah, we never ask people, like, obviously when you're close to someone or in a situation like this, like, we can get into it. But you'd never ask a random about the worst thing they've ever experienced. And then the hardest part about it was they'd ask you and I'd go into detail about it and then it'd be like, okay, cool, bye. And then it's like it's so opened up and and to them, I I think to a lot of people it just seems like a story, which it is a crazy story and I totally understand why people want to hear about it. Like I'd be so interested in a skydiving accident, you know what I mean? It's like it's wild. But I think to some people it does just seem like a story. But it's not like it's it's real. It's your life, and it happened, and yeah, and it's it's still like ongoing now. It's not just something I can speak of that was in the past. It's like very very present. So 
Yeah, after that post, though, I think that was really... And I didn't, like, anyway, if anyone's listening to this and has asked me, like, about it, I don't, like, I don't care. It, I, didn't, I didn't even know it was affecting me until I realised later, so, mm. yeah. I'm happy you put that post out because I think to not have that pressure on you anymore every time you go out and meet a follower is great. And, you know, the, since I did that post, people don't really come up to me as much anyway, which I, fe- <laughs> I do feel a bit guilty about. Like, I'm so happy to have a chat with people and I love talking about, like anything it's just the pure the actual skydive part I don't want to speak about well just ask how are you like how are things going now yeah and yeah I love when people have a chat but I feel like I maybe came across a bit too intense no we personally love we we loved it okay great yeah (laughs) we went back through it this morning actually and we're like this is worded so beautifully so if you are listening to this through a program yes please I I do love a chat (laughs) (laughs) our final question that we finish every in conversation episode with is all of this in mind your life story in mind what does success look like to you Oh, um, hmm. success to me. Okay. This is going to be really deep. Um, (laughs) when I, when I think about success, I think about the, the feeling that I had when I was about to die. I feel like I imagine that's how we would feel when we're old on our deathbeds. And I, when I thought I was about to die, did not feel like I'd lived my best life. That's such a phrase now. <laughs> Didn't live my best life. Hashtag. Um, and I, I hadn't done all the things I wanted to do. And I wasn't even the person that I wanted to be. I wasn't proud of myself. So I think that success is living in a way that when you, when you are facing your death, hopefully when we're very old, you can look back and be proud of who you are and you can you, you wouldn't want to change anything because you really did hashtag live your best life. Em, that is such a gorgeous answer and we are so thankful to have you on. I know that it's really re-traumatising to go back through the darkest day of your life so we feel incredibly grateful that you've done it here today because we know it's not easy. Uh, it's No, it's good. Like it's great to talk about it in a way like this and where like I'm, you know, prepared to talk about yeah. it but it's just sometimes yeah, catching you off guard <laughs> in the street. But no, it's been so great so thank you very And much. we're so excited to continue this conversation tonight in Brisbane at our live show. So, God, Brisbane people coming tonight will get this and the show. So they're very lucky. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ella. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless. And thank you again to Emma, not only just for being so eloquent and clever in that interview that you just listened to then, but also for joining us on stage at our Brisbane live show. Emma just blows us away with how incredible she is and to talk about her story in front of 350 people is no small feat so thank you Emma if you are listening to this and another thank you as well to Nat Fornasia. Nat is another of our favourite in conversation guests that we've done across the year. Nat joined us in Sydney and she also blew us away by the by as well while I've got you a lot of people have been DMing us this week about the floral arrangement that was behind Nat up on stage that is by Fig and Bloom on Instagram fig underscore and underscore bloom They are a wonderful florist based in Melbourne and Sydney. Now that I've gotten that off my chest and helped you all out, if you found Emma as wonderful as we did in this interview and you haven't listened to Nat yet, please go and listen to Nat Fornasia's episode. They're very similar kind of personalities. They're both bubbly and beautiful and have incredible stories to tell. So I will put the link to Nat's episode in the show notes. Other than that, go follow M on Instagram at M underscore Carey. We are at Shameless Podcast. We also have a Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community, and we would love to see you there. That is all from me. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Bye, guys.
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.